Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So I have a question for you. Are you are you a joyful person? I mean, as you, as you look back over your life, I mean, you think about your temperament, who you are, would you say you tend toward the happy sides? You know, you're one of those guys that always looks on the bright side of things. You, you have a tendency to smile often. You just, you find joy in the simple pleasures of life. I mean, is that, is that you or, or would you say maybe you're on the other side, more of the negative, pessimistic side of things? And how would you describe yourself? Because I think there, there are some of you for sure that are watching this, and you're just naturally, you're a happy, joy-filled kind of person. But I'd venture to say that many of you watching this right now, I, that you actually probably tend toward the others. You wish you were happier. You wish you were more optimistic and saw the brighter side of things, but that's just not really who you are. Which I think begs a follow-up question, why not? Why are there so many of us, even believers in Jesus Christ, and we just don't seem to be joy-filled kind of people? We tend to be afraid or anxious or, or, or even angry, and why don't we have joy, especially when this book teaches us we're supposed to have abundant joy from God himself? Why don't we have it? Well, this morning, I want to answer that question for you, and not just in the sermon this morning, but also in the sermon series we're going to have as we travel through, through the book of Philippians, which is a book about joy. It's actually a journey that, that started a number of months ago, about seven months ago, as we were preparing for our lead team fasting retreat. And so every time we go on these fasting retreats, I always know I've got to pick out a certain number of books of the Bible that we're going to dig into. And I pray, God, help me know what books we need to read and, and really study while we're on this fasting retreat. And the Lord led me to the book of Philippians. And, and i got to confess to you, I had never read Philippians with the eyes that I did on that fasting retreat. It, it was for the first time. I've read the book dozens of times, but it was the first time I realized just how much the book of Philippians has to do with suffering. Now, maybe it was because I was on a, a multiple days without food and like suffering was the norm. But for whatever reason, I was zeroed in on the intensity of the suffering that Paul talked about in the book. And equally surprising to me was that the book wasn't just about suffering, it was about how to have joy in the middle of intense suffering. And I knew in that moment, as we were going through this pandemic and so many people were suffering job loss and sickness and death and pain, I knew we were going to need a book that was going to teach us how to find joy in the middle of suffering. So I decided, decided then that we were going to study this book of Philippians chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and let Paul teach us the secret to how to find joy in all circumstances. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you in on a newsflash. That secret that he's going to give us is to understand that joy is very different than we might think of. I think a lot of times when we think about joy, we think about joy that hinges upon circumstances. I think a lot of people define joy as a feeling of delight or pleasure that derives from agreeable circumstances. But you can see the obvious problem with that, right? Like if our joy is hinging upon our circumstances, the moment those circumstances change, so does our joy. The, the moment... You have one injury, one breakup, one job loss, one global pandemic, one thing where your circumstances are no longer agreeable, and there goes your joy. And I believe God wants us to have a joy that is so much deeper than our circumstances. I believe God wants us to have a joy that is rooted in the very personhood of God himself. And this morning, we're going to start the journey where Paul tells us a secret to how to find our joy rooted in God. It's going to start in the book of Philippians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open it up. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be beginning in verse 1 in just a moment. 
Now, before we jump into this, let me go ahead and tell you, these first two verses are going to be a greeting. Paul gives them in every single one of his letters, and they, they seem, at face value, they seem to be boring and meaningless, but I'm going to teach you something about Paul. He never wasted a word. Even his greetings were shoved full with purpose and meaning. In fact, in this greeting, he's going to give us some of the themes of the, the book itself. And so I want you to see the precision of his words and really learn, even from the greeting, some of the themes that Paul wants to give us. So with that in mind, join me. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I know I told you it sounded kind of boring and stale, and you see that, and you're going, I don't see any, any major truths, but he actually delivered a couple of wallops here of truth in just some of the words he used. First one came in the fourth word of the first verse. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That word servants in Greek is the word doulos. Some translations will have a footnote on there, and it'll take you to the bottom, and it'll be the word slaves, because that's what the word doulos is. It's a slave. Now, most English versions, versions use the word servants because they're rightfully being sensitive to the reality of the atrocity of slavery in the English-speaking world, and they want to be sensitive to that, and, and I, I agree that's a good thing, but sometimes in sensitivity, we miss the meaning of a word. Because a servant is different from a slave. A servant has some autonomy, some freedom, some ability to choose for themselves. But a slave does not. A slave is owned by somebody else. A slave has no freedom unless their master gives them some freedom. A slave has no possessions unless a master lets them own possessions. A slave can go nowhere unless the master tells them to go somewhere. They are completely owned and directed by the master. And that's what Paul is claiming here. He's claiming to be owned by Jesus Christ himself, that Paul has no freedoms apart from Christ. It's really interesting he would use this term at the beginning of Philippians because his whole journey to Philippi in the first place was an act of his slavery. He actually didn't want to go to Philippi. If you were to go to Acts chapter 16, we're going to turn there in a little bit, but just walk with me on this one. In Acts chapter 16, he is on his second missionary journey. He has entered into Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, and he wants to travel out east. He wants to head east, deeper into Asia Minor, to plant churches, to spread the gospel. And it says that the Holy Spirit forbid him from traveling east to share the gospel, which sounds kind of crazy, but this is a reminder that Paul does not own his own agenda and his schedule. He's a slave, and the Spirit said, don't go. And when the Spirit of Christ says, don't go, the Master says, don't go, he can't go. And the very night that he gets that, that message that he's forbidden to go, he has a dream a dream which is referred to as the Macedonian call. There's a man who in the dream, a Macedonian man says, come help us in Macedonia. And Paul knew immediately, he had just gotten instructions from his master. His master was telling him not to head east, but actually to head west and to go up into Macedonia and take the gospel there. And so it was that move that took him on a boat where he went to a city called Neapolis, which is a port city, and then went 10 miles north to a city called Philippi. So his whole journey to Philippi was simply because he was a slave of Christ. That's why he went, and he's owning that right here. But what's doubly interesting about that is the fact that right here in this title, he only calls himself a slave of Christ. Nowhere else in all his other letters does he leave it that way. In fact, every single other letter that Paul writes, he uses the title apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was owning that title so that he could prove his authority to write that particular letter. Now, in two other letters, he uses slave as well, but he says slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, still claiming that title. This is the only letter in all the letters of Paul where he only calls himself a slave. 
Now, that may not sound that important, but what he's doing right here is he's actually giving us one of the themes of this book of Philippians. It's the theme of humility. He's showing them what he's about to teach them in chapter 2, the humility of Christ, where he talks about consider others more important yourselves, humble yourself like Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to become a slave on earth and obedient to death. He said, I'm going to teach you about humility, but right from the very beginning, let me show you humility by only owning the title slave of Christ Jesus. He's given us theology in the very beginning. But the second thing I noticed right there at the beginning about this is not just the fact that he lowered himself, but it also shows that he exalted some other people in the church. He doesn't give himself a title, but he gives others titles. He says, to the overseers and deacons. The word overseer is referring to the pastors, the elders of the church, and then deacons. These were titles of leadership in there, which I think is odd that he would not give himself a title And this is the only time he refers to titles of people inside the church, lowering himself, elevating others. But there was a reason why. It was because Paul knew that the church would only survive if they leaned into the local leaders instead of into him. And part of that reason why is because Paul had such little influence in the founding of the church in Philippi. Now, okay, I'm going I'm to forewarn you. I'm about to get my Bible nerd on. I'm about to tell you some really cool history that led to understand the book of Philippians. And I get super stoked about this stuff. I, I was talking to my wife, Virginia, sharing her all the stuff I discovered. And I could see the glaze coming over her eyes as she was just putting up with me. And I asked her, like, you don't find this as intriguing as I do? She says, no, no, not quite, Jason. So you may not find this as intriguing as I do. But maybe there's a few nerds out there who will enjoy this history lesson. Because I I think once we understand how the church was born in Philippi, we read the letter to the Philippians with totally different eyes. So I think we need to go back to Acts chapter 16. I want you to mark your spot in Philippians. We're going to come back to it. But I want you to jump back to the book of Acts, a few books before it. Find chapter 16. In a moment, we're going to read in verse 11. And we're going to see the history of the founding of the church. And we're going to have some shocking discoveries. One of the discoveries is going to be how little time Paul actually spent in Philippi. He was hardly there at all, just a few days, maybe a couple weeks at most. And you're going to see how little fruit he actually bore in that city before he left. It's remarkable. It starts in verse 11. Now, right before verse 11, you you remember he had the Macedonian call, the dream, come to Macedonia and help us. And right after that dream, verse 11 happens. So let's pick it up, see what it says there. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, now pause there just for a moment. Interesting little tidbit of information here. It says that he went to the riverside on the Sabbath day and found some women praying. Now, if you know Paul's normal habit, he always went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he would reason with the Jewish people trying to explain to them that they had a Messiah who had come. His name was Jesus. But he doesn't go to the synagogue here. And most scholars believe there's a reason why. Because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a big city. It should have had a synagogue. You only needed to have 10 Jews and 10 Jewish men in a city in order to form a synagogue. But apparently, in the whole city of Philippi, there wasn't even 10 Jewish men. Only a few ladies who would gather together on the riverside to pray. Most believe this is a sign that there was some pretty severe persecution against the Jewish people. Now, that's going to be important because Christianity flows from the Jewish faith. And so if Jews were persecuted, Christians will be persecuted. That'll be an important theme in the book of Philippians. But just wanted you to see that early on. All right, let's keep on reading. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, so now you have the first conversion in Philippi. It's a woman named Lydia, likely a wealthy woman. She's a businesswoman. She and her household. We now have the first group of believers in Philippi. God is beginning to move. Looks like he might even plant a church in this city in Philippi. Now Paul knows why he had gotten the Macedonian call, because God is bearing fruit. Then it gets even more exciting as the story comes on, because you're going to see even more power of God take place. Keep on reading. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul in us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which I find kind of funny, totally annoyed by this, turned and said to the spirit, I commend you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And now you have a miracle. Bam! Paul is casting out demons. They're seeing the power of God. So now you have a, more than likely another conversion. Now, it doesn't tell us explicitly here, but all throughout the Bible, when demons were cast out, oftentimes they begin to follow Jesus after that. So likely now we have the, the Poles now. We have a, a wealthy family who's come to Christ, and now an ex-slave who's now been rid of a demon and likely come to Christ. And now we have the formation of the two spectrums socioeconomically coming together, this little motley crew to become the church. And people are beginning to see the power of God. And you just have this feeling, man, the church is about to explode in Philippi. But what you're going to learn about Paul is that brother had more ups and downs than the Judge Rory scream at Six Flags Over Texas. I mean, it was just woof, woof, all the time, up, down, up, down. Things were up right now, but it was about to turn south. Let's keep on reading. See what happens next. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that her hope of gain, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. And again, you kind of see that, like they're Jews, you know, it's like a, it's a, an indictment against them. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Man, what a turn of events. Here they are flying high, seeing a demon cast out another believer. And then out of nowhere, these, out of jealousy, they come and they attack Paul. And the magistrates, the very leaders of the city, come and they're the ones who strip Paul and they, they basically order Paul and Silas to be jumped and beaten with rods and then thrown into prison, shackled in the inner sanctum of that prison to rot away. And when everything had been going so great, it just seemed like now all was lost. Here he is, destitute, broken, no work's going to happen, it's over. But like you see in everything else, the moment it gets down, Paul's going to go right back to an up. You're about to see what God does when things get low. Keep on reading. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, isn't that amazing? They're singing while they've just been beaten and they're in prison. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear... He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Man, what another turn of events. Like, isn't the crazy stuff? At this point now, here he is. He's been beaten. He's bleeding. He's in jail. It seems like all is lost, but he's still singing because somehow he's able to worship his Lord. And then there's an earthquake, but this is no ordinary earthquake. This earthquake just opens the doors and unshackles his feet, and he's free. And here's this poor jailer. He feels the earthquake. He wakes up because it's midnight, and he's looking around going, holy cow, the, the, the prisoners are gone. I'm done. They're going to come kill me. And so he is so overwhelmed, so depressed, so anxious. He gets a sword to take his life. And right before he does, Paul screams out and says, don't do it. We're still here. And the Philippian jailer was so overwhelmed, he goes to Paul, and all he could ask was the most important question of all, what do I have to do to be saved? Because obviously your God is the real God, and Paul tells him. Plain and simple, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, man, fish are jumping into the boat. God is growing his church, and Paul's just holding on, watching God do all these miracles. And again, it seems like, all right, we pick back up steam. The Philippian church is going to explode again. God is going to bring more and more into their ranks. And just when it seems like things are going great again, the whole story gets truncated. Let's finish it off. See how it ends. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those, these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beating, beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. End of story. And that right there is the last example we have of Paul doing any ministry whatsoever in the city of Philippi. That's it. Now you have one, ver one verse in, in Acts 20 where you see that he might have maybe visited Philippi just like a little pit stop on his way traveling back from his third missionary journey, but that's it. No more record of him doing any more ministry, any more church planning at all, any more teaching in the city of Philippi. So he leaves after having been there just a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. He's seen two families come to faith in Jesus, maybe a slave girl come to faith in Jesus, and that's it. That's all he has, and he leaves them and just says, God bless you, I hope you become a church. That's the only experience he has with them. So now here he is 10 years later, and you go back to the book of Philippians, and he's writing to them, and get this miracle that's taking place. This little group of, of ragamuffin nobodies, people who don't have any theology training, any kind of doctrine lessons, nothing that would cause them to become men and women of faith, they now are big enough where they have structure, they have pastors and deacons, and, and they're supporting Paul and his ministry. Man, that's a miracle, 10 years, and this happens without Paul's touch. Paul knows that church is a miraculous church, but he also knows that church is under fire. They have a great threat because of what I said before. They disdained the Jewish people in Philippi, which meant they were going to disdain the Christians as well. And as the Christian church grew and became a threat, he knew that the city of Philippi and the Romans and the others would begin to attack them and persecute them. He knew they would suffer immensely. So he writes this letter to them to prepare them for the suffering and to teach them how to find joy in the middle of the hardest of times. 
All right, so now that you have all this context, this new understanding of what took place in Philippi, I think we can read Philippians with the correct eyes. So let's keep on journeying. Let's read verses 3 through 11 and see how he gives us some major themes of the letter here. He says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as you read that and you know the story, it becomes so apparent how much Paul loves these Philippians. He speaks about them with such tenderness and affection. And, and I love the fact that he just talks about how he has joy, such incredible joy in thinking about them. Now, there are two things that are surprising about that joy. First of all, it's surprising he has that much joy in thinking about them because he knew them so little. He had spent such a small amount of time with them. He'd only really interacted with Lydia, with the slave girl, and with the uh, the prisoner, the jailer of the prison, that, that was about it. He didn't really have any interaction with anybody else. And yet, even with such a small amount of time with them, there's just something about the Philippians that just drew his heart to feel joy in thinking about them. In fact, most scholars believe that the Philippians, the church in Philippi, was his favorite church bar none. He spoke more tenderly to these people, had more joy about them than anybody else, which is surprising. But the second thing that surprises me about his joy is where he's at when he's expressing this joy. Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, was in house arrest more than likely in Rome. Now, there's some debate about where he was, but there's no doubt that he was incarcerated at this time. Most believe he's in Rome, he's traveled there, he's awaiting to meet the emperor, and he's shackled to a Roman soldier, he can't even leave the house, and he might be awaiting his death. Here he is, in the worst of circumstances, and he's exuding with joy. In fact, the whole letter of Philippians, he uses the word joy and rejoice more times in this short letter than any other letter that he writes. He's, he's abounding in joy. And, and there's a side like, how in the world can he have so much joy when he's, in, he's incarcerated, when he's trapped and shackled? Maybe a good question would be for you to ask, like, would you have that kind of joy if you were in his shoes? Because I think if we're honest, the majority of us would have to say, no, no, there ain't no way I'd have that kind of joy. And then we'd have to ask the follow-up question, why not? Why wouldn't we have the joy that Paul had? And I think the answer would be what we said at the beginning, because so often our joy hinges upon our circumstances. When our circumstances are good, we feel happy. When they go south, we go south. But Paul obviously had a secret to joy that allowed him to have joy in every single moment, even when he's in a prison. And I think he, he taught us some of these secrets right here at the beginning. He's going to teach them all throughout this letter. But here he gave us four points, four places of clarity that I can see that helped us understand his joy. And, and I want to walk those through you just one by one. Now, if you take notes... Get your pen ready, take some notes. If you don't, start taking notes because these are going to be four things you need to know that we can learn about where joy truly comes from. Here's the first one. His joy came from his choice to remember the good instead of the bad. Write that down. His joy came from his choice to remember the good instead of the bad. Those words are real important. I'm saying he had a choice to make and he made the choice to remember, to reflect upon his past and focus in on the good instead of the bad. You're going, where do you see that? Well, that, that was verses three and four. Look at those verses again. 
He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He says, I have this incredible joy when I remember you and I pray for you. But, but I want you to stop and think about the, the craziness of that. Do you remember what happened to Paul in Philippi? When he thinks about Lydia, when he thinks about that Philippian jailer, he's remembering the time as well when he was jumped and stripped and beaten and thrown in a jail to bleed and sit there hungry and cold and tired. Yeah, Paul had some good moments in Philippi. He saw the miracle of the conversions and the cast out demon, but he had some horrendous times as well. And what Paul is doing right here is he is choosing to focus his attention on the good instead of the bad. And I think we're learning an incredible life lesson about joy. Where we give our attention, what we choose to focus in on matters immensely. Here's what I know about every single one of you. You have had good moments and bad moments in your life story. Now, and maybe you feel like the bad has outweighed the good or the good has outweighed the bad. It doesn't matter. Every single one of us has had good moments and bad moments in our story. But what we choose to focus in on, what we choose to remember, that's what's going to make or break our joy. I think there are so many of us that we are haunted by our pain and our suffering and our difficulties and our failures. And all we do is we focus all of our attention on the things that we've done wrong, on the things that have been done wrong to us. And we get angry and we get bitter and we get mean and we have no joy. But if we would just stop for a moment and focus in on the good things that have happened, that's when joy comes. When we start to focus in on the good that God has done for us instead of the bad that's been done to us, all of a sudden joy begins to emerge. And that's the challenge. God is saying, would you be willing to look at the good, remember the good instead of the bad? Because joy comes with that. That's the first observation I see. Second observation I'm making this. His joy came from his confidence in God instead of himself. His joy came from his confidence in God, the one who's in control of the universe, instead of in himself and his ability to control. Now, now you got to remember, there would have been a grave danger for anxiety to be inside of Paul because of how little time he had with the Philippians. He comes, he sees a conversion of Lydia, sees a conversion of the slave girl, perhaps, sees a conversion of the Philippian jailer. He's there just for, just for a, not even a few hours with the Philippian jailer, not even a full day, maybe a few days, a couple weeks with Lydia, and that's it. And he's gone. He's not able to instruct them, give them seminary classes, make sure they understand God's truth. He has to leave on his missionary journey. And I'm certain that if he's, if he's feeling like it's up to him to grow the church, he'd be filled with anxiety. I didn't give them enough time. I got to go back. How are they doing? I'm sure they're falling off. And that anxiety robs joy. But what you're going to discover is that Paul didn't have that kind of anxiety because he didn't feel like it was up to him to make it happen. Look at verse six again. He states real clearly who he believes in. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. He said, I didn't start this work in you. I wasn't the one who converted Lydia. That was the spirit of God. I wasn't the one who had the power to cast out the demon. God did that. I didn't cause the earthquake that brought the jailer, that brought the jailer to faith. God did that. God is the one who started this work in Philippi. And if God started it, God is going to finish it. I don't have to be worried about it. He had incredible confidence that his God could be depended upon. His God had control and therefore he was able to find joy. Listen, I think there are so, especially those of you who are parents, and you need to take heed to this. And we are all, we live in so much anxiety, and I'm there with you. 
I got a kid who's getting close to college age. I got a whole mess of kids, and I'm going, holy cow, are they are they going to be okay when they get out on their own? Are they going to really love Jesus, or has it all been just because mom and dad have asked them to? Some of you have grown parent, or grown children who have abandoned the faith, and you're wondering, is anything ever going to happen for them? You lose sleep, and you feel so anxious about it. And what Paul's trying to remind us here is it was never up to you to save them, and it's not going to be up to you to complete the work. Now, that's not going to be, mean that God might not use you to disciple your children, invest in your children, absolutely. But it's not up to us. God starts the work. God finishes the work. And if we can have our confidence in God instead of ourselves, we'll be able to sleep at night with a smile on our face. Our joy comes from recognizing God is doing it. So Paul can be in Rome shackled to a Roman soldier with no ability to go to Philippi, no ability to teach them other than to send them a letter, and he can have a smile on his face. He can have joy because he knows his, he knows his God is going to complete the work. So where do you put your trust? I love the way an author, his name is Chuck Swindoll, puts it. I think he really frames it well in this choice we have between joy and anxiety. He says this. He says, joy is a choice. It is a matter of attitude that stems from one's confidence in God, that he is at work that he is in full control, that he is in the midst of whatever has happened, is happening, and will happen. Either we fix our minds on that and determine to laugh, or we well and whine our way through life, complaining we never got a fair shake. We are the ones who consciously determine which way we shall go. That's some solid truth for us. We choose to trust in our God, and that brings joy. That's the second thing I can see. The third thing, observation I want to make for you. His joy came from his willingness to open his heart instead of just protecting his heart. His joy came from his willingness to, to risk it and to open his heart and to give away his heart to others instead of always just closing it off and protecting it from everyone else around him. Listen, I think this is a huge joy stealer for so many of us. We have been burned in our past by people, people who have done us wrong, people who have lied to us or lied behind our backs or scarred us deeply. And we've gotten to the point where, you know, once bitten, twice shy, we're going to hide and guard and protect these hearts of ours, and we're not going to let anybody near them. And because of it, we don't have any close relationship with anybody. And joy comes from these deep relationships that God wants us to have. And what you see from Paul is that Paul was not afraid to open up his heart and to risk it. You see that in verses 7 and 8. Look back at those verses again. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I gotta be honest with you. There's, there's a part of reading this where you almost blush. Paul talking about yearning for them. It's like, it's like watching people kiss. You're like, I'm not supposed to be looking at this right now. It makes you feel uncomfortable to see how lovey-dovey he's getting with the Philippians. But Paul is not afraid to express his emotions, to say, I love you guys. I want you to know it. I love you. He's willing to risk it. Why? Because he knows that there is so much joy found in that kind of relationship. He's willing to let down his guard and love. To which you might say, listen, man, the Bible says guard your heart. You know, you're supposed to be cautious with this and people will burn us. So that seems really foolish just to give your heart to anybody and everybody. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's what Paul did. And I'm not saying that that's what I recommend you do either. Paul didn't just open up his heart to everybody. There's a reason why he opened his heart to the Philippians. Because they were faithful friends to him. That's what he meant when he talked about, it's right for me to feel this way because you are partakers of this grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's what he's saying. 
He's saying, yeah, you guys were with me when I came to Philippi and I was larger than life, casting out demons, being a part of earthquakes, bringing about conversions. They knew Paul, man. He was this incredibly successful, powerful apostle of Jesus Christ. He was on top of the world, but now here he is 10 years later and all that stuff is gone. He's at the bottom of the barrel. He looks like a failure and a loser shackled to a a soldier in Rome. No more ministry, no more anything. All the success and fame is gone. And yet his friends in Philippi are not gone. They're still with him and they're still supporting him. That's back in verse five. It talked about that they were partnering with him in the gospel from the first day all the way up until now. They were faithful partners with him. They were not ashamed of him when he had his chains. They stuck with him through thick and thin. That's why he was willing to be such a friend to these people and open his heart. But let me tell you, Paul had a lot of other people who were with him that did not prove to be trustworthy. We did a, a study over First and Second Timothy, and we learned about people like Demas and Philetus and, and Hymenaeus. And these were guys who had abandoned Paul and turned their back on Paul. And Paul said, let them go. Uh, he did not, he protected his heart from such people. He knew who to give his heart to and who to protect it from. That's the key. Listen, you have had people in your life. Some of them have been really, really painful memories that you have. They hurt you. They scarred you. They turned their back on you. But you have had people in your life who have been friends through thick and thin, who've stood by your side. And maybe your problem is you've been so focused on the people who've hurt you. You've gotten so embittered, so jaded that you just determined no relationship can be good. And you're missing the good people in your life who've been with you. Maybe they're family members, parents, siblings, children. Maybe they're just friends who are with you through thick and thin. And what this is saying is it is okay to open your heart to those kinds of people because there is joy in those relationships. Don't be afraid of that. Be willing to open your heart, open your heart and not always protect your heart against everybody. But then there's a fourth thing I see in this. The last observation I want to make, and it's this. His joy came from his trust in the righteousness of Christ instead of his own. His joy came from his trust in the righteousness of Christ instead of his own righteousness. You really see that in verses 9 through 11. I want to finish up looking at these verses. Here's what it says. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he's praying this last bit right here. And he's saying, guys, here's what I long for you. I long for you to grow in your faith and love and knowledge. Ultimately, in verse 10, he says, so that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, so that you can walk in moral purity and uprightness and righteousness when Christ returns. Now, you can hear that and you can falsely conclude what he's saying is, guys, I want you to work really hard to be ethical and moral people. I want you to try really hard to be really good and make sure that you earn your righteousness. But if that's what you read here, you are missing all of Paul's theology. You're missing the theology in this book because he says over and over again that it is not our righteousness. He says our righteousness is just rubbish. We have righteousness that that comes to us from Christ Jesus. That's actually what he was saying in verse 11. This is the key to this, understanding what Paul's saying. He says, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes the prepositions in, in, in English translations are hard to convey what's going on, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. 
In other words, we have a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. There's a big fancy theological word. It's called imputed. His righteousness is imputed upon us. It means to be placed upon us. He lived the righteous life that we couldn't live. And that righteousness was placed upon us and we can claim it on our own. And there is fruit from that. And the fruit of that righteousness is obedience. I know that's a lot to take in. So I'm going to simplify it for you with what I teach at every single covenant membership class. I've taught it here before as well. It's really understanding the difference between religion and the gospel. So religion is something that teaches a, a truth that every religion in the world follows. And here's what it is. I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by God. As long as I obey God, as long as I walk according to the ordinances and walk a pure life, then I'll be accepted and loved by that God. Every religion of the world, take Judaism. As long as I obey the law of Moses, I'll be accepted by Yahweh. Take Islam. As long as I obey the five pillars of Islam, I'll be accepted by Allah. Take Buddhism. As long as I follow the eightfold path, then I will be caught up in the divine nirvana. Christianity oftentimes is taught the exact same way. As long as I obey all the rules and regulations in this book, I try to be a good person, then Jesus will love me and accept me. That's religion, but that is not what Paul is teaching. Paul teaches something called the gospel, and the gospel is contrary to that. The gospel says, I am already accepted, therefore I obey him. The righteousness of Christ has been, remember, imputed upon me, So I am now fully accepted by God, not by my righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. That's why he says that you're filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Therefore, the fruit of that is I obey him. But here's the difference between those two. When I'm trying to obey God to be loved and accepted by God, I feel anxious and afraid or angry because I'm I'm worried God doesn't love me or I don't think he's loving me enough for the good works that I'm doing. There's no joy in that. But when I know I'm already accepted by God because of the righteousness of Christ, when I obey, I do it out of joy. I can't help it. I want to love him. I want to express my gratitude that he would love a broken sinner like me. So when we understand this, the righteousness of Christ is what makes us right. Joy is what flows from it. And I want to suggest to you that every single one of the points I taught you is really coming down to the fact that it is joy that flows from belief in the gospel of Jesus. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to believe in the gospel. So I'm going to leave you with that. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as we take the Lord's Supper. Before I do, though, I want to ask you a question. You sitting wherever you are, I want to ask you this. Are you a joy-filled person or not? Because if, if you're not filled with joy, you have to ask the question, the same question I asked at the beginning, why? Why are you not filled with joy? And so here's what I want to suggest could be a reason why. Maybe it's because you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've never believed the gospel. Here's what I know. I know that there are many of you and your hearts are filled with fear and anxiety and bitterness and hatred. There is no joy in your life. But God wants you to have joy. And the way you can find it is by finding the joy that Philippian jailer. If you remember the very end of it, it says that he was rejoicing because he had believed in God. But do you see how it happened? When he saw the miracle of God, he says, tell me what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, it's very simple. You just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's all there is to it. You just got to come to that point of desperation. Remember that Philippian jailer was about to take his life. He was desperate. He was broken. And he said, what do I have to do when he saw the power of God? And Paul says, believe in Jesus. That's the same thing for you. Maybe you're desperate. Maybe you're broken. 
Maybe you're finally ready to call out, and he's saying, if you'll just ask the question, what do I have to do to be saved? The answer is the same. You believe in Jesus. You just turn away from your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You call upon him, invite him to take over. Let his spirit come in and you will be saved. And you can find that joy that that Philippian jailer found and that every person who's truly in Christ finds. If you need that, today is your chance to do so. Listen, you don't even need me to do that. You can pray right where you are, wherever you are. You can say, forgive me for my sins, Lord Jesus. Take over my life. Come, become the master of my life. I'm ready to be your slave, your servant. When you pray that, he's right there listening, ready for you to ask him to save you, and he'll do it. But if you pray that bold prayer, we want to know about it because you'll need the church to partner with you and help you to grow. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you have prayed that prayer, if you're ready to make that decision, then I want you to let us know by getting out your phone and texting the word next step to 94253. Or if you prefer, you can go to your computer. You can go to fielder.org slash next step, just like you see on your screen right there. And when you go to this place, what it's going to do is it's going to let you let us know, filling out real briefly what's going on, how we can pray for you. If you're ready to follow Christ, if you need some questions answered, and we want to partner with you. We, we have a gentleman named Robert who oversees our online campus, and he would love to connect with you. So if that's the, the decision you need to make today, let us know, and we'll reach out to you soon. But listen, I also know there are many of you watching this, you're believers in Jesus And maybe you aren't filled with joy either. And you're asking, but why not me? I believe in Jesus. Well, it comes right back to the gospel. It could be that you're not believing one of these things that Paul was because of your your missing of the gospel. Maybe it's that you're focusing on the bad instead of the good in your past because you've forgotten that God has been in charge of your destiny and the gospel shows you you're going to be his. It's all going to work out for good. Maybe you've lost sight of the gospel and you're trying to put confidence in yourself instead of in God, that he's in control. And you let the gospel remind you he is perfectly in control. Maybe you've been closing your heart off to everybody else because you're worried that if you give your heart, you might not be loved back. But the gospel reminds you the Father will always love you back. Maybe you're you're so scared that you're not going to be good enough. Your righteousness isn't going to be good enough. And he's saying, look at the gospel. Remember, Christ's righteousness is good enough for you. So during this next song, you might need to take a moment. You might need to get on your knees and just say, God, forgive me for not believing the gospel. I want the joy of my salvation. It can be yours. And as we worship in this next song, as we remember the gospel of Jesus, we prepare our hearts. Let's worship him. And when we're done, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper.